0: say it loud network presents corner table talk hello and welcome to corner table talk today my guest is the lovely chef naisha errington my la homie what's up boom <laughs> uh
1: you know i'm just living the dream brad i'm so happy and honored to be sharing the space with you today
0: oh that's awesome well you've been living that dream and sharing it with the rest of us generously so for those of you um a lot of the folks who um, are tuning in here will know who you are but those of you who might not uh naisha is just a phenomenal chef la born and raised uh she comes from a mixed heritage which is really interesting i want to dive into that a little bit korean and african-american but she has worked in some of the most esteemed kitchens and with some of the most incredible chefs including someone who she attributes as a mentor to her Josiah Citron and also the legendary chef Joel Rubichon. You've worked with both of these fancy fellows and you've sure gained a lot of very valuable experience along the way. I've known Naisha for a number of years. Anybody who's been in and around LA for any number of years and has followed food and restaurants and the evolution of restaurants in Los Angeles would be very familiar with Chef Naisha Arrington. So Chef, welcome to the corner table. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to start off with what we call, I call, our short order questions, just to fire a couple of things at you and get you rolling. All right. Okay. Ready for that? Let's go. All right. Substitutions or no substitutions?
1: Depends on the
0: dish. Oh. Oh, yeah.
1: oh, 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 on the menu. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh you know. Yeah. I mean I think in this day and age you gotta be malleable, a hundred percent. I think like in the nineties, like chefs could get away with it, but I think You know, 2000s, everyone's got food allergies, dietary restrictions. I think, sure, like the artist brain side of me is like, no substitutions. It's perfect as it is. But the pragmatic consumer facing side of me is like, I get it. Like, you know, you can't eat avocado or whatever. You know, I get it. So yeah,
0: Yeah. accommodate.
1: Yeah. I think so. I think, you know, (laughs) the hospitality (laughs) business, you got to do it. (laughs) I'm
0: down with that. Favorite city?
1: Ooh, favorite city. Um, favorite city you know i'm going to have to say um wow so many going through my mind cuz i don't think it's just particular to you know our great nation um i'm going to say tel aviv was amazing um really full of life got a pretty awesome tattoo in tel aviv and um you know i uh, experienced the culture there and um It was amazing. Tel Aviv was like a young; it felt like a young, fun city, but like such deep roots. And um, it was a beautiful experience to kind of travel and hang out there.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. What what inspired the tattoo?
1: Um, Well, thank you for asking. Actually, Um, so I went to Jerusalem prior to Tel Aviv, and um, I visited this place called the Ramon Crater, and they say it's the most uh, spiritually, like electrically charged place in the universe. And so, Brad, what I I, I tell you this, like, it's just insane. Like we, I was with a big group, maybe 20 people. And um, we went out to the desert, middle of nowhere, where there's no lights, no, you know, we drove long time and it's just pitch black. I remember like looking around, but then t- thinking to myself, like, wow, I need to not even be looking linear. I need to be looking up. Like, this is like you know, the closest, um, you're supposed to like, it's the closest, it's the shortest amount of space to outer space essentially. So when I looked up, like I felt like I was in the galaxy, like there were like shooting stars everywhere. Just the sky was just alive with shooting stars and like all the like constellations you could see, like they were a light bulb. And, um, I just remember that moment. I was like, wow, like it really puts into perspective, like, you know, our life journey as like human beings on this planet because I remember seeing the Big Dipper and then it took me back to being in my front yard with my dad and my sister. And he would always like point out the signs for us. And my sister and I would call them out in the sky. And I remember I'll, I always look for Big Dipper. And then when I saw it that day, like it was such a full circle moment for me. And so I remember that, you know, when I got to Tel Aviv, I was just like being a tourist walking around and there was dope tattoo shop. And I just like, I just wanted to go in there and get like an earring or something. And I ended up telling this lady's story. She was like, oh, it's amazing. And then um, she was showing me her artwork. And I said, you know, what? I'm gonna go ahead and get that on my arm. And because it was so you know, a life um anchor, you know, it was like two moments in time that were fused together by one anchor being the big dipper that never changed. That was there. But as a kid, it felt so far away and it was just this place that, you know, over there. But when I was in Jerusalem, really um, where I saw this, It just, it seems so tangible. I'm telling you, like, it looked like light bulbs in the sky and, like, it was an amazing moment.
0: Yeah. Wow. All that beautiful vision and she can cook, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, now I know you're a snowboarder, so share with us your best memory snowboarding.
1: Wow. A hundred percent. I really... Love, I love seasons, right? Because I think in LA, we're a little spoiled here. Like we don't get a lot of like, you know, snow and all the things. So I really value being able to go to the snow. But uh, I was with uh, this family in Aspen and there was the most epic powder that I've ever snowboarded in my whole life. Because, you know, here we go to Big Bear, go to Mammoth or, you know, Utah has great snow. But when I went to Aspen, like... I never experienced conditions like that. And being able to snowboard on like powdered sugar was like Hmm. amazing. It was amazing. That's definitely my favorite snowboard trip.
0: I went snowboarding years ago with my son at Whistler's. The first time I had ever known a New York city kid, I didn't grow up snowboarding and I did not do well. So uh, that'll be a conversation (laughs) for another time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nicest beach.
1: What about, Oh, nicest beach. Um, nicest beach is, um, uh, my favorite. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. I'm a beach girl, man. I have been on the West coast, on the West side for about 20 years now in LA. Um, but wow, that's a, that's hard. Nicest beach. Um, I'll have to say I used to live in the Caribbean and, um, with Connie, what Connie got me and, uh, and, um, I was was on an island called St. Kitts, uh, but we went to um, Anguilla, and when I went there, I remember seeing this, like, turquoise water. I could picture it like I was there right now. It's like, these are those moments that you don't even take photos of because it's like, you know what I mean? You just got to, like, blink and, like, let that live in your soul. And that was one of those moments because it was like, I was, like, in my 20s, maybe, and I remember being on that island, and the guy uh, who took me to the island, Pilot Mike, he was an Angolan guy. He like you know was of the island. Like there's very lax rules in the in, in the British Virgin Islands, you know. So it was funny because I left the island I apparently wasn't supposed to, because uh, you know it's like you have to have a different passport. So I had to like hustle to get my way back in the island. That's a different story. But anyways, <laughs> this beach when I saw it. It was like turquoise, sparkle crystal water with not a wave in sight. Mm-hmm. You know, just still, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. like sugar sand, just sparkly, and then like two white sailboats that were just like couldn't have been on on this same time frame, just in their own time. And um, yeah, that was that's definitely my, one of my favorite. You favorites. know,
0: and, and and something to the point that you raised, you know, the the experience sometimes doesn't require a photograph, right? It's what you remember of it, how you hold that memory and cherish that memory is is just that special to you. And the way you described it, we get it. I get it. I see I'm there with you. So right? that's, that's enough. Yeah. Lockdown lifted, safety protocols in place. Yes. It's Tuesday night, you're in Los Angeles and you're you're not working. You have the night off. Where's the first place you're going for a meal and what are you ordering?
1: Wow. Probably I'm going to go to K-town. Um, I love me some Korean barbecue. Um, I'm probably going to have to make it a crawl because like I would go Korean barbecue at parks and then I will probably go. Get some like oxtail dumplings in like the deep K town. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Asian flavors. So then K town's a whole vibe. So I'll probably Mm. go ahead and do that.
0: (laughs) Are you a beer drinker or are you more cocktails?
1: Uh, Generally cocktails. But if I'm in like Korean barbecue and like, uh, you know, where it makes sense to like drink beers, I could, I could hang with beers, but it's not my number one choice.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. So shifting gears. Thank you so much, uh, Naisha for agreeing to uh, be a guest here. Um, you know, the last year, 2020 was just incredibly difficult. So much going on pandemic, the, the racial justice protests and just what we watched, what we saw, what we observed it was just a lot for us all to process and still process. Um I know some folks you know we sold post and Beam to John and Ronnie, Cleveland in the summer of two thousand and nineteen, and folks said to me, Oh man, you know you you got out right, you know just in time, and I think what folks and i this is i'll pose this in the form of a question to you um what folks don't understand is that this is our industry you don't leave it it's always a part of you, and we've been mentoring and and coaching along John and Ronnie. Um, so you know, I'm very much a part of it. Yes, I feel that their struggle is different than mine. But but watching it from the sidelines has also been difficult. I'm just curious, how are you holding up? How how what's your take on that? How are your friends in the business doing? Former staff, you keeping in touch with folks? What's going on?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question, Brad. You know, and and just shout out to to John and Ronnie because they just are lovely humans, and I've been able to be able to curate some cool events with them. And you know, like. You know, knowing that legacy. You know, meeting you back when it was posts and beams, literally, mm-hmm. and them stepping in. You know, and
0: that's that, right. it was Golden Bird you know? actually yeah, the first yeah, time exactly. you walked in there.
1: Yeah. So like to now and then seeing them, it's just like I feel like that's like fam. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, just mad respect to them. But yeah, I mean, I have to say I haven't had more conversations in 2020 with hospitality folk than in the whole previous 10 years of my life. Just stayed on the phone talking to people, doing a lot of conferences, a lot of, um, you know, when when the IRC was built out, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, um, you know, I was definitely a lot of hands in on that because, yeah, to your point, you know, I I, I left my restaurant and closed it in 2019 um, because it just didn't seem like the long-term uh, plan, you know, it just wasn't the right fit. So I definitely feel like, you know, a lot of um, industry folk and chef were like, we don't know what to do, you know? And so I think I had a different perspective being that, you know, I was still working, doing stuff more virtually, but, um, through the social unrest, you know, um, injust and, um, and the restaurant closures and the reopenings and, and all the things, you know, the, the, what I found out to be the common denominator most, and I'll be honest, mostly, especially with my male counterparts, um, is there was a, it was hard to, um, to have empathy, you know, because, uh, the chef industry and culture is a lot of, a lot of it is rooted in, you know, hard work, right? Like it's, it's rooted in hard work. And a lot of those, um, you know, softer, uh, emotions get put to the wayside a lot of times, you know, in, in, in the back of the house, especially because it's just go, go, go. Everyone's focused. You know, of course, it's a healthy environment, but everyone's focused on their task at hand. And, and that's about it. Like, so I think a lot of emotions were healing, you know, as the restaurants reopened, as they closed, as people were trying to pivot and maneuver and learn and adapt. And um, it was a roller coaster. And so I think it was hard for people to, you know, that was the biggest challenge, obviously, obviously, financially, uh, monetarily, and um, but I think really especially emotionally, you know, and and I, for me in my coming up, uh, empathy and uh, things like that were not valued emotions coming up, you know. Um, so it was more just armor, like. And you know, I just I came up in the French regime, though. But I think you know we're 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 in a very interesting transition, you know, because we see a lot of uh, tech and you know big business in terms of restaurant business doing well, right? They're doing well. And a lot of the quote unquote, mom and pops or single owner operator businesses are um, being faced with a lot of challenges because to pivot, it also means it also costs money, you know? And I think that's, what's interesting to the person who's not of the restaurant industry to, to close, to start up, to close, to start up. is so, so, so hard because it's like a lawnmower, you know, it's like, You're gearing that thing up and then it it goes, you know, and it takes months sometimes to get that centrifugal force happening in the soul that that intangible energy of a restaurant is not something you can flip on and off with a light switch. And so it's challenging um, to see that. Right. So, you know, I think we we've seen a lot of the menus kind of be tailored to um, slim down, right? We're seeing more micro concepts come out where it's just like one thing done well. Well, we, we just do chicken sandwiches and it's this sauce, blah, 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 blah. It's not naysaying it or, or praising it. You know, it's just people had to adapt and, and um, bring down their overhead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, now, you know, I was in New York last week and it's like dining is almost that. Like every space that I was walking down was full. You know, everyone was um you know I think it's thirty five percent capacity now, and um what a different energy I felt last week than here, you know in my hometown and um, yeah, it's hard because you know I have a circle of friends uh, that I work out with who are chefs, and man, I mean I'm nose ear to the ground every day with these with my friends and um, and in food media as well. And so I've really just tried to do what I can to try to help raise capital, do, you know, fundraising dinners. You know, we saw a lot of like consumers come through and really um, support delivery. But I see most of the headlines I'm reading are like about the delivery apps right now and how that um, is affecting the bottom line of these single owner operator restaurant businesses.
0: Yeah, I want to, I want to touch on that. I'll, I want to come back to it, but I also want to, and I'll come back to another point that you raised because I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because you talked about the French regime and, and, you know, I know the culture of kitchens and as a woman of color, having come up in the back of the house, basically, I'm sure that you've seen a few things. So, but I'll, I'll come back to that. You know, some of the issues that you just raised, Naisha, have been, they were in the pipeline prior to COVID, right? I mean, the, the whole issue around minimum wage and you talk, especially for independent operators like the world that we come from, which are the, I I believe are the heart and soul of the restaurant industry, right? We need these places. We can, we can't lose them, right? But staff shortages, um, you know, there's some degree of market sat- saturation, you know, and you can you can argue that whether or not immigration policies have negatively impacted um, the availability of staff or, you know, in our case, as African-American operators, we also see some challenges with trying to entice African-Americans into the service industry. So um, out of control rent, outdated service models, some of the things that that you just and, and again, as independent operators, how do we afford health care? when Cheesecake mm-hmm. Factory and, and some of the large, they can pay bonuses and healthcare, and it's very hard for us to do that. Um, but you mentioned the delivery space, and I'm very curious to get your feeling on that, because we're seeing this proliferation of ghost kitchens. And as someone who sets the table, sets the mood in the room, you deliver, your your food hits the table, and there's a whole experience around that, right? Being in a Naisha Arrington restaurant. How does a, how does a chef, how does a ghost kitchen and food and delivery system, how, how does that stack up in your mind? How does that experience, how does your food, (laughs) um, hit the, hit the same table and hit the table in the same way?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's such a fascinating topic of conversation. That's so hot right now. And I see it because I've been on both sides of the tablecloth of the proverbial tablecloth, so to speak, you know, with the high touch white linen down to the throwaway napkin and compostable knife and fork. Like I've seen it, you know, from toe to toe. So like, you know, I think it's interesting. First of all, there's a cartoon movie called WALL-E and like basically By the end of it, people are like driving around in these like automated cars and like the food just comes to them. And it's like they're just eating and like it's like I just feel like that's where we're heading as a society, dude. And so, you know, it's it's just so I think that's one part. Right. I think if we're thinking about this, like compartmentalized, I think uh, social media, I think um, the implementation of the Internet and the digital space in, you know, late 90s, really, we saw a super bubble it's just been a constant trend of progress in the digital space and tech space. And then I think, you know, all these companies that we're seeing emerging are seeing niche markets and these opportunities to get in where they fit in, so to speak. And, you know, I think the argument is, you know, before the delivery with model was like, you know, Domino's Pizza, Pizza Hut, like those are the people who were delivering, right? You get delivered pizza. In my, that's all I really remember. Maybe Chinese food, right? And some Indian stuff like that. But like, there was never these apps and like, you know, third party services. So I think the interesting thing is like, and the argument that I hear a lot is like, from both sides, is like, well, would that business have come through your door if it wasn't brought by the third party? And that's the justification of the thirty-five percent or twenty or whatever they're charging that that entity. Um, so you know, from a neutral standpoint, I see it all, um, from an artist and curator and, um, a storyteller and a lover of hospitality to welcome someone into your, at your dinner table is to show the utmost um, sign of love and respect for another human being, right. To nurture another soul is such a selfless, selfless act. And, um, And and it's not for everyone. Right. It's certain people think about that and it makes them feel warm and tingly inside. I'm one of those people, you know, right. Like just that's what life's about from generation to generation, because then it's like, what's the conversation? What does the conversation of food look like 300 years from now? You know, like, is that a lost art? And so I think, you know, for me, being a person who loves experiential. Right. Because nine times out of 10, we're not thinking about that. Anniversary or that work accolade. We're thinking about how we felt, right? It wasn't the physical date on the calendar. It was like, oh, we were in Paris at uh, blah, blah, blah. And we had that amazing champagne and that, that caviar, whatever, you know, it's the food memories and that data that lives in the soul that we can transfer to our next of kin, our loved ones, our friends, share moments in time that make us human, right? I think that's, that's so important that makes us real, you know? So I think it's so interesting because I think it's layered. I think I honestly think that these micro concepts and, and things like ghost kitchens can be, if you're looking at it from like a pillar standpoint, I think it could be a branch, right? In the root system. I don't think for me, it's like, I put all my eggs in that, you know, and I feel good about what I'm putting out. Cause that's just a machine could do that. Like, I think it's like if if, for example, if I have a menu and I know that my lamb belly wontons are my number one seller and I could do the math and I can crank them out and sell them on gold belly, sell, you know, get them in as many people's houses as possible. And I use a ghost kitchen for that. That makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. or if I'm trying to create a CPG line or like a sauce off that, I think those are the avenues you can take to do that more model. more
0: as an ancillary business opportunity than the main. Yes. I I like that, you know, and, and I'm encouraged to hear that on your recent visit to New York, that you saw the dining rooms full because that that's been a, you know, a conversation that we've had, you know, are we about to hit the roaring twenties or are people going to be reluctant to be in spaces again because of COVID and the fear of, you know, being in a crowded room and breathing the same air or sharing plates. But you saw, you saw vibrant dining rooms?
1: You know, Brad, so here's the interesting thing, right? Because I was there for about uh, a week, six days, and I'm very cautious, right? I'm not like living in a bubble, but I'm definitely aware. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm I'm a back of the house girl. Like I'm already sanitizing and being aware anyways. So, you know, so just as an observer in New York and also, you know, a visitor, um, it was interesting because I saw both sides of the spectrum, right? One interesting moment was when I was in my hotel, you know, I'd probably been there for two days or so. And, um, this gentleman, the, the elevator door opens and I hadn't I actually hadn't crossed my mind prior, you know, cause they have the little social distance thing. It's a pretty big elevator. And so, you know, you have four people in it at a time. And, um, I went to get on the elevator. There's one single person in the elevator and the door opens and I politely go to step in and he like, he puts his hand up, like it, basically in front of my face and he's like, like shaking his head like don't come in here i'm like wow like that that was like jarring you know i was like oh like okay (laughs) as long as like living in my little bubble like life like everything's fine and happy all the time and i was like whoa (laughs) you know so you know there's people that what was that about I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> to this day, I was like, let me just at least use your words. Be like, oh, you know what I mean? Just say yeah. something. You know, just put yeah. up in much space like that. Oh. So, like, you know that, and then, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, going to uh, my buddy um, has a restaurant there called Blue Cali, and um, he's in Brooklyn. He's probably got ten seats in the restaurant. Uh, pretty small space. Some outdoor stuff. Um, open kitchen. And I mean, that's the energy in that space was so healing. He has a wood-fired oven. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was just so lovely. So lovely. The hospitality was lovely. You just, you could see the joy on the maitre d' and, and the service staff and the chef and the team. Like, it was just, ha- it was like a ballet, you know, you're witnessing oh, like, like this, you know, beautiful yeah. symphony. Yeah. And um, we miss it, that, man. I, I know, yeah.
0: I know folks miss it. I, I do
1: it's giving me chills just talking about yeah. it you know? yeah. candlelight and just beautiful wine. And like, ah, it's beautiful. Yeah, is interesting. And everyone's from the diner's perspective, me being a diner in that space, everyone seemed very happy to be there.
0: That's so nice to hear, man. I, I love hearing that. So going back to L.A. and let's just kind of revisit what the world in L.A., the food world in L.A. looked like pre-pandemic. I've been living in L.A. for 30 years, born and raised in New York. And from the time that I moved to L.A. when it was basically the dining scene was Ivy at the Shore, or Ivy on Rock. Robertson and, may, and maybe a Wolfgang Puck restaurant, but not much more, to what it has become, which in my opinion, and I'm curious to hear if you agree, I think LA is leading the culture in yeah. food and creativity and, you know, just it's, it's an exciting environment. How, how do you see LA, the food scene in LA? And again, we're going, we're looking at it pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, wonderful question, you know, uh, and one that I'm very passionate about as I've been here uh, a lo- a long time, right? And I think really the conversation is also, right? There's exciting food. There's no freaking doubt like everyone in the nation wants to be in LA. You see a lot of New York chefs coming to LA. For me, you know, coming up as a young culinarian, you were always people were always like you got to go to New York to get your to ch- cut your teeth, you know? When you could survive in the New York kitchens, then you get taken seriously. And now we see it's flipped, you know? for multiple multiple reasons i think people just want a quality of life it seems like people can have a little bit of different re- i don't know you know I'm not, i am not i don't know but i know what people have told me and and a lot of my friends have come here from new york actually um you know uh during the pandemic a lot of people left new york to come here but i think from a food perspective i think what we were talking about also is a like free Jonathan Gold world and a post-Jonathan Gold world mm, as well. You know? Our
0: beloved food critic who we lost. Yeah, yes. man. Because he
1: he really was able to antithesize what the culture of food is. You know, like his his dialogue was like, just for me, in my humble opinion, just really spot on because he didn't only go to the Ivies at the Shores and write about them or the Opulence, Life, Hollywood, Dantana's, all these places. He talked about the San Gabriel Valley dumpling shop too, and talked you know and put a lot of restaurants on the map
0: with and, reverence. I mean not just you me? in, like he was a regular customer at the yes. place there.
1: yeah exactly exactly, mm-hmm. and just a beautiful soul and and I for me, he was always my muse like when I was create you know and I always think because I respect him you know and i no, other than my my dad and a couple other people like really i i you know i I'm a very linear person, and so A lot of other people are just kind of cast of characters, but this man, he really, like, I just, uh, you know, I got to meet his family and his son and sit with his wife and just really understand his brain from a creative standpoint and a writing standpoint and obviously a food standpoint, but he's not, he's just not one of those wafty people. You know, he has an internal root system about himself that I respect. So, you know, I was fortunate. This is one of those didn't take a picture moments, but I just sat in my soul but two weeks before he passed, we were at on a farm and it was a long dinner table. The chef was uh, here from Peru and he was doing a dinner and I and he motioned for me to sit next to him. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm sitting next wow. to John Gold right now. Like this is like amazing, you know, and but it felt so like that's what had needed to happen in that moment in time. It felt so organic, you know? And so, you know, his wife was across and we, and his son, and we all sat and, um, I remember, I'll never forget the topic of conversation was, uh, about mashed potatoes <laughs> and about if a, if a, if a technique is a technique or is the chef who made it, is that who makes that technique, right? For, and then I brought up the point of, yes, you know, I think, you know, for example, the Robuchon potato when you say that mashed potato, that's a specific style of cooking. Like that's not just any mashed potato. Um, But anyway, I, yeah, you know, I think that the food culture in Los Angeles is sort of akin to like the wild West in that anything is possible, like in the most beautiful way, you know, like, and I, and I especially am proud to see a lot more of the flavors and cultures and cuisines of um, you know, just not only European descent getting the limelight. It's so beautiful to see so much Filipino food, you know, African cuisine, you know, Ethiopian, Latin, like all these other flavors coming out, you know, and, and being celebrated. Because before, I, when I was coming up, I feel like those restaurants, you know, unless Jonathan Gold was talking about them, like they were not really being talked about, like, or those flavors were being served at family meal, but not on the menu, you know? You know, yeah.
0: as you're saying that, and I've been a fan of Jonathan Gold, and he's been, he was very kind to Govan and I at Post and Beam. But as you're saying that, I I understand a little bit more clearly, how Jonathan was, in large part, responsible for being the driving force behind the food scene evolving the way that it did. He brought pride to the corners of that world that really hadn't had the exposure and for people like yourself who you know have been in the front end and leading, and people love your food and love your places. You know, and hearing the fact that you were inspired in that way, it really kind of crystallized that thought for me about him and how he was central to to all of that.
1: Absolutely. And I remember, you know, when I opened my first restaurant, he was like, you know, I I remember the first time I met him. Oh, this is such a full circle moment. Because I met Marcus for the first time at Post and Beam when Govan was there. But Mm -hmm. then when I met John the Gold for the first time, Marcus was uh, he was interviewing Marcus and he's like, oh, come through. Um, and so we were all walking down the street. It was dark. And he said, oh, do you know, Chef Ney Sherrington? And I'm like, this guy doesn't know who I am. And he's like, yes, of course. I know. Chef
0: Ney-Shal.
1: I'm like, oh, my God, you know. Oh God. You do? <laughs> so
0: cool. <laughs> well, it's a little, little funny segue. So. I I'd had Naisha in my sights from way, way back. And uh, when we first got the uh, the space at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza that became Post and Beam, it was a former Golden Bird location. And I contacted Naisha, and she was gracious enough. You had just gotten back from the islands. Wow. I remember tracking you down and you were just getting off a plane and you almost wow. came from LAX. And you met me and we stood around and the place was dilapidated and, you know, the area has grown up quite a bit since then, but you know, I, 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 certainly was, was interested in you from back then, but you know, we've stayed close and you know, yeah. you did some, you've done some, some pretty cool things since then. I want to turn to your family and I read that you come from an artistic family. I know your dad has been very influential, but your last name, you've got some musicians in your family. I, I read that you've got a bass player you've got a drummer and I'm just curious this is a stretch and I know I've never asked you this before but any relation to Steve Arrington from the group slave
1: you know um, I don't think so but my dad uh, has definitely talked Some about those records <laughs> are you kidding me no music was the biggest. Influence in my life growing up as a kid, man. I, I'm so grateful for that because I just adore music. I adore vibes. I think that's why I'm in food, you know? But yeah, I mean, um, my dad, he used to play with the brothers Johnson. No uh, way. Yeah. So those are his cousins. And so when I was a kid, we used to like go hang out with like Quincy Jones, you know, Brothers Johnson and like, and it was so cool, man. I remember that like being a little girl, like going up and seeing this like just amazing property. Like they're like trip they're like very faint memories. But just, I remember you know those are my first like cognitive thoughts some of them that I can retain you know and um but yeah i mean saturday sunday mornings were always spent with like my parents cooking and we'd always have like grits eggs bacon like you know and my dad would make like biscuit pancakes and or, <laughs> or like you know biscuits or something and we would always have funk music on every every morning and he it was his vibe he's a bass player he's a slap bass player And and a very talented human being. My dad is definitely my best friend and and, uh, my love. I mean, he's such an uh, honorable human. And, um, man, he's always been such a good dad to me and my sister and just really taught us that we can do anything we want. You know, he really empowered us with life tools as kids, put us in team sports. We did martial arts. um, You know, we played ping pong, table tennis all the time. Just things that help you brain development, you know, and and he always told us, you know, aim for the moon and hit the fence post, but don't aim for the fence post and hit the dirt. He would always say that I
0: I want to stay on. I want to stay on your dad for a minute, because I read that he gave you a a pretty instrumental book in your life called The Four Agreements. And it's it's described as a practical guide to personal freedom and uh, freedom from self limiting beliefs that may cause suffering and limitation in a person's life. And when I think about someone like you, um, who's so unique and, and gifted and talented and all that, but you know, you're, you're, you're an attractive person. I would think that in some ways, maybe you even, even had to overcompensate for, you're not just going to hire me because I'm cute. I'm going to be good. But when I read that your dad, had the insight to like drop some knowledge on you like that is so dope. So tell, tell me a little bit more about, and then married your mom a a Korean woman that took a little bit of bravery to just tell me, shed a little light on pop.
1: Yeah. I would love to. Oh, I'd be honored to. Um, Yeah. So my parents met, I want to say, um, is there a Baldwin Hills mall? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say they met there or so they grew up in Crenshaw area, but, um, my mom went to George Washington high school and, um, and they met and they had me. But my mom is actually, um her dad is black and and her mom is Korean. So she's mixed. And then my dad is uh, Cherokee Indian, Caucasian, and black. So hence me. I did my DNA test and I found out I'm like 8% Japanese. I guess, obviously, from the colonization in Korea. But... So they met and, um, they had two daughters, myself and my sister, um, my sister and I are completely opposite people. <laughs> um, and so, but yeah, my dad, he was the coach of my softball team. He, um, I talked to him probably three times a week at least. Um, but I mean, I, t- I, I can't, I know it comes from, um, my great grandma, Lena, because, uh, she, And that side of my family is from past Christian Mississippi. And um, she moved out here and she provided, you know, and she really was the matriarch of my family. And my dad tells these most epic stories about her cooking. And for me, I never met my great-grandma Lena. And, you know, I was raised a lot by my Korean immigrant grandmother, right? She was, I think they call them tiger moms or or tiger, but she was like, it had me in the books like all the time, you know? And so- i um I feel like a lot of influence came a- about in different ways in different stages of my life, but my dad has been the most consistent, never diverted from anything but excellence in my eyeballs because he's such a caring i mean the guy he would give like an ant on the street his last bite of food like he's just he's such a universal basic thinker and not in the way of like minimizing his thoughts in the way of but minimizing the thoughts like he doesn't deal with any static like A lot of the social intangible things that society wants to put on you, he's just not here for it and not in any kind of aggressive or bullshit way. He just doesn't live in that life. He lives in a universal perspective in the stars and the galaxies and, 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 you know, really has a larger grasp. Um, So I think that, you know, growing up, that was always really inspiring. I'd always see him doing these like juice cleanses and, um, he would like make our vitamins, like get actual empty pill the capsules and like get powdered psyllium husk and all these things and make our vitamins and like, um, just really nurture us, you know, my like my sister and I and, and my mom. Um, but food was always a big part, you know, and that, so there was that side of him, but not to say he didn't, Have an indulgent side as well. You know, he would cook dinner, and his thing was dad's famous spaghetti. And um, he'd always make this, like, kind of chili hot link spaghetti thing with cheddar cheese. I don't know. That was his thing. He always (laughs) was like, kind of weird, but kind of cute. I don't know. That's not going to
0: make its way on a Naishi Arrington menu anytime soon.
1: (laughs) Man. (laughs) But he has an amazing palate, Brad. I tell you, growing Uh. up, I would just be in the kitchen all the time making a mess. And be cooking. And he would always be like, you know, over time, obviously, it evolved, but he would just pull out all these little distinct things in the food. I'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah.
0: I read somewhere where you said that uh, when you were younger, it was hard for you to adapt to one culture or particular racial group. I'm a mixed uh, ethnicity as well. My mom was Italian, my dad was black, but I quickly chose. I I was like, I'm black. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had to. My friends weren't having it. It was like, yeah.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. Um, and I'm I'm happy to have done that. But you know, your dad with his, his free thinking and the kind of, um, in what, what he was inspired by. Did you feel that that kind of freed you in a way to Mm -hmm. express whatever you wanted to express? Because your food represents that it's not confined to, to anything culturally specific, yet it's representative. So how, What's yeah. Your, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. You know, honestly, Brad, I think that that it literally who I am is a conglomeration of all of my life data. And it just got put in a jar, shaken up. And that's what it is. You know, I think as a kid, I always knew I was a black woman. But like I for me, even as a kid, I just think like society always wants to like put you in a box. And like I've always I, I think this is. In my 30s now, I'm like, I just always, I feel like I have such a valuable opinion and I always just want to be heard. And I think that comes from being suppressed for so long. And I, and I always just want to feel valued, you know, and if, and it's not like an ego thing, but it's just because I just, it's just enough just to listen. (laughs) Like you don't have to agree or not agree, but I think for so long, I've just had to fight for that space. And, um, So now I'm like, oh, that's okay. You know, I think for me, it was like a weird place of like, how do I be in my skin? Because I think it wasn't that I didn't know who I was. I think other people were trying to put me in a box and that bothered me mentally, you know, like... Black culture was like, oh, she, you know, she doesn't talk a certain way or she carries herself a certain way. So she she's too good or something, you know, things like that. You know, I think I was always aware of who I who I am or who I was. But I think it was the pressure of other kids putting pressure on me that made Mm -hmm. me like be like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, you know. And so it wasn't like a, to an extremist, I wasn't like abused or bullied, but just, you know, in in elementary school, kids just don't know. And you're just learning and figuring stuff out. But, you know, I just want to say, sorry, about the food tip, just ask me real quick, Uh, because it's something that's on my mental always. It's like my style of cooking because How I cook, I feel like I really cook with thoughtfulness and intention. And, you know, my food is very much I love to cook through the seasons because I love to be a proponent for our earth and Mother Nature and um, just what makes sense from like, you know, what grows in spring. Let's cook what grows in spring, you know, Um, and then try to implement flavors from around the world, because like, I don't only want to cook, you know, like soul food or, or, you know, or have the media tell me that that's what I need to cook because I have dark skin. You know what I mean? Like that's definitely like, I'm going to get a little, like, you know, I'm going to push back to that. Like if I want to cook, I will, because I grew up eating gumbo. I grew up eating fried, uh, stuff, like soul food. But like, I also think that there's a, it's not a sensitive topic around it, but I think, you know, I think, I think that, it's a multifaceted topic because when people talk about the ancestral diet and like eating chitlins and like, you know, the throwaway pieces of food, because that's all that was available. Like maybe I don't want to celebrate that, you know, so I can only cook like what my life journey has been. And so that was a big part of Korean influence. That was a big part of, um, my food influence from Mississippi and my family and my, and my, My uh, aunts, all my aunties making all, you know, they stayed making all the sofa. I'm telling you, the delicious collard greens, mac and cheese, like my auntie, all my dad's sisters stayed cooking, like cornbread, all amazing things I grew up with, which it plays a big part of my life. But, you know, going to French cuisine, three-star Michelin kitchens, I saw a whole new world of ingredients and techniques and flavors. You know, I cooked next to gentleman from Japan, a woman from, you know, wherever, and, you know, Spain. And, like, just being immersed in all of that, I think, opened up my perspective on, like, what my style is. And I always think, for me, I think my common denominator, if I had to choose one, it's rooted in, um, in celebration of culture, but not just my culture, you know? So I think mm-hmm. I'm able to make sense of that through the seasonality of, of, of you know, what's in season at that moment.
0: You know, that's, that's really beautiful. I mean, the, the tapestry of who you are as a person and that, and having experienced that in your restaurants and, and knowing the kind of food that you do, it it gets expressed in your food and it's so unique and cool and you don't shy away from anything. So it's not like you're, you're trying to say, well, you know, I'm I'm better than cooking that or bet you, you'll incorporate whatever you think is appropriate. But at the same time, You've given yourself license to be free to do what the hell you want to do. And I love that. I really, really love that. And the other thing you just said that just made me, had me shaking my head. I forgot how young you are. You're still (laughs) like a baby in this industry. So let's talk a little bit about how you had to elbow your way around in some of those kitchens as a woman of color, um, male dominated environments. We've all heard some of the bad stories that have come out of our industry in the last few years that's gotten exposure and behavior that's frankly been going on for for too long. But how did you navigate that, Naisha?
1: Okay, great question. Um, You know, I haven't wrote a book or anything. And it's not like I'm trying to write some kind of tell all book or anything, because I really value I value um my upbringing, you know. I um I have grit and I have perseverance and I have thick skin and I'm a strong person, you know. So I endured a lot, but but it's like now we live in cancel culture, so you look at someone wrong and it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying don't have a voice. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like it's a different world now because um, I came up pre Me Too movement, pre any talks of inclusion. You know, I was the girl who worked, came in four hours before my shift and worked off the clock and then stayed three or four hours late as like an hourly employee. You know, that's like not even, I'm not even in upper management. And so, you know, because i cared. I just value my craft first and foremost. You know, I'm just grateful to be As long as there's a value proposition in anything, I think you can get people to be inspired. You know, I think when people can walk away with something and think, "Wow, I'm I'm more valuable as a human, or in my craft, or emotionally, whatever." Um, I think that's the important takeaway. So I always felt like I was receiving something, and for me, Mm -hmm. that exchange was not monetary all the time. Sometimes it was knowledge because I wasn't a perfect person. You know, I've messed up things, I burned things, I. I've led people wrong. I've made the wrong decisions. My path was a path of of intention. You know, I started out as a salad cook, you know, pantry person. They call them pantry or garmage, Um, but cold prep. And then I um, I worked my way up. Every position I've taken from culinary school, which I've only essentially worked in food, food and beverage. I worked at Taco Bell when I was 17 in high school. And from there, I went to culinary school. And... From there, salad, you know, up to saute, line cook, sous chef, you know, executive chef, worked overseas, uh, you know, chef partners, like I've done the entire spectrum. And so I have a good amount of data, right? Areas of opportunity for me to grow and also many areas of triumph that, you know, where I've been recognized for my work. And so, you know, I think I don't think that I would have the self um sustainability package and wherewithal uh, if I didn't go through that hard time. Right. And I'm not advocating th- for it, but it was a different time, you know, Um for me, like, an- like I came up with like Anthony, the Anthony Bourdain generation where it was like, work hard, play hard, you know? And like, um there was no talk about like mental health and like balance and all these new things that are happening now, you know, yeah. like it was just, it was a, pirate ship you know and so having to navigate that was very very difficult i remember nights where like i felt it wasn't like i was like in the corner crying uh, you know it that was for the the freezer was for that <laughs> no um but like just being physically and emotionally broken i mean the industry that's what they set out to do to young minds and cooks at, in at that time in my life they completely intentionally break you as a human and rebuild you the way they want you know Mm -hmm. and so uh it's a mental game it's a physical game and um, it's an execution game and the person who can do it the best wins you know at the end Mm -hmm. of the day that's kind of the puzzle and i just remember the first time i walked into a michelin-starred kitchen and a plate down there flew past my head And this is like a Bernadotte plate, right? Like the plate itself costs $50 before you even put any food on it. Like white porcelain Mm -hmm. and like... I don't know what it was, but there was like an adrenaline rush that ran through my body. And I was like, this is where I need to be.
0: Like, <laughs> Somebody why. else would have ran for the exit, but I, oh, I love it. I love it. Chef, <laughs> so, you talk about I hear your strength in the description of what those experiences were like. And it's not surprising to me, knowing you now how that you persevered, given your personality. But. You talk now about, you know, hugs for the soul, spreading the message of love through food. You know, we're moving into a, you know, constantly we're evolving here, right? And we came out of a, a very difficult year and we're not done yet. So 2021 still has some things up its sleeve, but we are trying to heal, right? And we're yeah. trying to heal the planet. And we're talking about, you know, impossible meats. And I just read about some uh organism that's growing in Yellowstone Park that they're converting into Food product, and you know, to take the place of the burger, and it, uh, eventually. But when you, as a as a as a chef who loves food and cooks, do you where do you see the the trends of health, and and how how will you heal people through food? Given that you know it, it, that's we're we're ingesting a lot of stuff, and some of it's good for us, some of it's not. Where where are you on that?
1: Wow, I love this question, Brad. It's like I'm so passionate about this because I had to heal myself. I really did. In 2019, I closed the restaurant and I broke up with my boyfriend at the time. And I really took a hard stop because it, it wasn't working, right? What, what was happening in my life up until that point, you know, in those restaurants, it, wasn't, it stopped working. And so I was like, okay, whatever is not working needs to get off of my table and... I need to reassess and so i really did a lot of soul searching and um you know i went to six countries one which was tel aviv i did a pop-up in hong kong and i went to new zealand i did a dinner went to france and um and belize and um i really got serious about my health you know i went um pretty much raw vegan not raw it, it, for a moment i was there but um I was a very plant based. Right. But then there would be these moments where I was tapping more into the alkaline diet because I started going down this rabbit hole of like research on how the body is affected by food and, and what fuels it and what uh, energizes it. And so mm-hmm. uh, because I fell in love with optimization. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think when I had this bandwidth to free up. I said, okay, like what's the next 10 years look like? You know, this was all great first 15 years of my life. Like what's the next 15 look like? And so I think to get to that point, you know, I want to be mentally and physically sound. So I lost like 22 pounds that year and it just all really came off naturally. I was working out a lot, but I wasn't like this madman trying to be like, Oh, I need to like lose 20. It just happened. I was like, Oh wow. Like, you know, I was super fit. I, gained about eight pounds during COVID, I hate to admit, but, um, I, but I'm stronger than I've ever been because I think that my, more so my mental, my heart and my, and my spirit are connected, you know? And so I think when those things, are, when you're in a flow state, humans can like achieve greatness. You know, I think we really don't actually tap into a lot of our like neurological function. And, um, a lot of that is because society actually doesn't really actually have our best interest in mind. You know, a lot of times there's a lot of chemicals, a lot of fillers in these labels, and something as basic as that, you know, reading labels is huge, you know, and there's a lot of poison in, in a lot of our food and our water, and it actually disrupts cognitive thinking based on the pineal gland, and we need to be able to decalcify that, and that is comes through deodorants, toothpastes, fluoride, that inhibits and i want to say there to say controls us um, from progressing and so you know i really lean into eating clean uh you know I, I eat a lot less meat these days um and to answer your question i think that's where we're going as a society i think that what we're looking at with global warming co2 emissions by phosphate and all this shit that comes through our bodies, it has to hopefully end and come to uh, a place to be rectified, you know, and and I would love to lead that uh, conversation. But I think it's a push pull thing because, you know, there's a lot of lobbyists and people at the top that control how our food systems are being built for America. You know, it's a big conversation
0: maybe I'll have you back if you would make some time and, and we can dive into that more fully, because I, I really think that that's a, uh, I mean, you can't place enough importance on, on that conversation. So now you should, I, I knew this would happen. We were coming to a close here and it's happened much too quickly. Um, But I just want to say that, you know, I, I, I just really admire you. And I think that you are really one of the people that just deserves to be watched. And listen to. You're you're in an important position and your mind is you know, those of us who, who are fortunate enough to, to have listened to the things that you've articulated today, I think the future is really, really interesting for you. And I'm gonna be watching to see to see where you go next and see what you do, what part of the world you end up in. But just please always let us know where you are, because we wanna we wanna follow you.
1: Absolutely, Brad. Thank you. I'm happy to thank, be here.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. So this part of the show I always look forward to. I get to check in with my dear friend and my childhood partner, Ambassador Shabazz. What's going on?
2: Fine. Partner in crime, that is.
0: Well, a few crimes. Misdemeanors. <laughs> <laughs> don't,
2: don't say everything.
0: Nope. Don't tell.
2: <laughs> well, it's been really interesting, as always. Your um, listening to your guests before coming on. is always really stimulating, and it... Sometimes moves me from what I think I'm going to talk about and encourages and inspires me to get into other things and or make the connection, which is really quite great about this work and reaching other people through this uh, forum, um, Corner Table Talk. It's exciting. And it, of course, is going to lead me to how we move, because just listening to people, you find a new part of yourself based on what they share, what they re- what they reveal um, in their journeys. And um, it's a really interesting. There was a young lady I spoke to a couple of months ago named Devon Reeves. I followed her because she was acknowledged as one of the young women in black enterprise who bought a hotel in the Midwest, in one of the Hilton hotels. And I really got to listen to her. She was just as exuberant, young, um, unstoppable, like Chef Naisha. and I've grown close. I always wanna hear her buzz. And one of the things that she talked about is that across the United States, that of all the hotels that exist, only 2% are owned by um, African-Americans. And, you know, that's it's disturbing to her. And of course, it would be disturbing to me. I would venture to say that there are bed and breakfasts, the smaller spaces that exist that are not registered, that just haven't made the list. Mm. And so I'm going to try to follow that. Where where are they? Who are they? You know, the ones that we know of are probably um, in member nexuses with others. And we make sure that somehow or another, this summer, while people are vacationing, you know, between Memorial Weekend and Labor Day, you know, to really um, get involved with staycations, since we can't, you know, viably move. But you can get in a car with your family, and you can dial up these places. And, you know, there's a location, it's a um, historic uh, mansion in the Mount Vernon section of Baltimore. Now, I'm from Mount Vernon, New York, but, you know, I guess George Washington got around, so he's kind of like (laughs) (laughs) named a few places. This is called the Ivy Mansion, and it's um, um, owned owned by Eddie and Sylvia Brown. It is the number six luxury hotel in the United States, bed and breakfast, only 18 rooms, but exquisite. They have the Magdalena Restaurant. I mean, I've been chasing them down wanting to go for the last couple of years, pre-COVID. I have to always remember 2020 interfered, but certainly in 19, uh, 2019 when I learned about them. And it's going to be one of my stops when I get back to DC. When I All I read about it is just fantastic. So I would encourage people to Check out Baltimore. You know, so often we hear about our urban cities and we talk about the cry, but we never talk about where the joy is, where the successes are. And I want to move in that direction. We've we've really come out of a time where we certainly know where the limp is, where the wound is, where the ache, where the reconstruction is. But let's talk about the reconstruction or the revivals and who's been doing the work and how to bridge that gap.
0: So tell us the name of the place again in Baltimore. It's called
2: the Ivy Hotel, the and Hotel. the address is mm-hmm. two hundred five East Biddle Street, and it's in the Baltimore. Sec- it's in Baltimore, but it's in the Mount Vernon section of Baltimore. And I just say go online. They have they're on mm-hmm. open table, so you can make a reservation. But they also have a spa. If, so if you don't stay overnight, if you live in the region, just go and um, patronize.
0: I, I I love that. I think you know as as we're gently starting to reemerge, it's going to be so wonderful to connect with people. In some of these places that you're going to be illuminating and, you know, just to just to see one another again and and be in the same room, even just from across the room, even if it needs to be at a a somewhat more distant space than than it was prior. But uh, I'm I'm really intrigued by uh, this this bed and breakfast place.
2: Yeah. Nice, wonderful husband and wife um, on the mature side. And this is kind of their baby in the backyard down there in. Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. And, you know, mm-hmm. it takes nothing to just drive the half hour, the 45 minutes mm-hmm. for a brunch, even. And um, another location, not a um, boutique, boutique hotel, but a restaurant in Harlem. About three years ago when I was in New York, I was meeting my friend Natalie Molina Nino. And she said, I'm staying uptown and can get in a cab and meet me at 139th and Edgecombe. I said, well, that's my stomping grounds. I'm from Convent and 140th. What's over there that I don't know about? Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of, you know, New Yorkers, we're really patriotic. And if there's a new spot somewhere we didn't know about, you know, you feel as if you missed the memo. That's not good. Yeah. So I Especially went. Especially
0: in your, in your immediate hood. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like across from my bank, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's called The Edge on the mm-hmm. corner of Um, Edgecombe and 139th, and between 139th and 40th. And that is also a historic building at 101 Edgecombe Avenue. In that building, it hosted a lot of the meetings of African-Americans during the Harlem Renaissance. And this place was found by two sisters, two siblings. They were in different parts of their careers. One is indeed a, a celebrated chef, and the other was a realtor. And they decided that they would scout and settle as proud New Yorkers who, of Jamaican and British descent. And when I tell you I walked into this little cozy spot, you have to make a reservation because it's not gigantic inside. But when I walked in there, oh, my God, between the music, the smells, and you know me, I started to feel the Caribbean thing when I look at the menu. They mm-hmm. have, it's broken into New York, Jamaica, and England. Mm. So I wasn't drawn to the British food as yet because I could smell the other seasonings. So mm-hmm. I did have some ackee and salad fish, which is an ode to uh, Jamaica. And the food looks like a scrambled egg kind of dish. It gives you a sense of a brunch, the ackee. And the mm-hmm. ackee actually comes as a fruit that was really brought to the Caribbean um, from West Africa, from Ghana. And then I had my uh, uh, avocado toast because I do have a pension. Uh, avocado in any form. And I so I'm a person that goes to these restaurants to get sides or pieces of different things on the menu, um, which was really enjoyable. And I have to say, in addition to the fact that their father is the one who brews... All of their Caribbean drinks, is famously the Jamaican sorrel. but I got the ginger beer.
0: Give me a ginger beer, a meat patty. Although I'm eating mostly <laughs> vegetarian patties now. Yeah. Oh, and some plantains, and I'm and I'm happy. So we've got the Edge in Harlem. That's right. And the place in Baltimore again. That's the, the Ivy Baptist. Hotel. The Ivy Hotel. Yeah. So Baltimore, yeah. Harlem, two must stops. If anybody's driving around the East Coast this Absolutely. summer and, and looking for some cool places, some and the places owners like are on are the spot,
2: o- the owners are right there, just like and you are. When place. people come into your places, they're saying, "Where's Brad?" You know, <laughs> and so it's that part of the hospitality mm-hmm. of meet, greet, engage is. I mean, it precedes the food sometimes. Just yeah. seeing the faces.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. And, uh, we're, we're looking forward to getting back out there again and, and rubbing some elbows. We miss, we miss each other. So let's, let's do that. Yeah. Get out and support some of these businesses that you're hearing about. They're welcome. they they'll be welcoming you and, and happy to see you coming. So ambassador, thank you so much and uh, go drink some green tea. I know you're ready to, to <laughs> yeah, soothe that throat. You've been on the phone. All morning with principals all all over new jersey and helping out the school system so go do your thing and thank you so much for joining us thank you corner table talk is hosted by brad johnson produced by brad and linda ailes johnson coordinating producer lauren turner theme music life goes on by bryce vine executive producers omar thompson andrew kalb and ken johnson Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.